a true crime story and we drink. The following content may be disturbing to some. Discretion is advised. If you choose to enjoy one of our themed margaritas, please ensure that you are of legal drinking age and have fun but drink responsibly. gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Andrew Borden is now dead. Lizzie hit him on the head. Up in heaven he will sing. On the gallows she will swing. Today's margarita is an ode to uh, childhood. Not because, as I believed until recently, Lizzie Borden was a child when her parents died. She was actually in her 30s, but because this crime inspired an incredibly popular rope-skipping rhyme. Spoiler alert, it's what you heard a second ago. Get those kids in true crime while they're young, am I right? So we started off with two parts tequila and two parts Sprite. We're going to add to that one part grenadine, my favorite. We'll add to that one part lime juice and top it off with one part simple syrup. Here we go. As always, we shake it up carefully when it's fizzy. And then we're going to strain over fresh ice because even children can be bougie. I think you could go with either a salt or a sugar rim for today's drink, but I want to balance the sweetness, so I'm doing a salt rim. Andrew Borden was an eighth generation high society man born and raised in Fall River, Massachusetts. His father had been one of the few Borden men who hadn't maintained the family's wealth. He worked as a fish peddler, so Andrew grew up pretty poor. Andrew was disinterested in the fish peddling life, so first studied as a carpenter's apprentice. He moved his way up the socioeconomic ladder, selling caskets. Foreshadowing? He would increase his wealth by purchasing substantial amounts of property and then also by running a cloth mill. He would eventually also serve as president of a major bank in Fall River. For his entire adult life, Andrew would only be seen in public wearing a double-breasted coat and a string tie. In 1845, Andrew married 22-year-old Sarah Morse. In 1851, Emma Lenore, the oldest of three daughters, was born. In 1856, Alice Esther was born, but she would die two years later of hydrocephalus. The youngest daughter, Lizzie Andrew, was born on July 19, 1860. In 1862, when Lizzie was two years old, Sarah would die of uterine congestion and spinal disease. On her deathbed, Mom Sarah implored Emma to look after little Lizzie a request that Emma would honor even in the most difficult days of their life several decades later. In 1864, when little Lizzie was four years old, Andrew would marry his second wife. Her name was Abby Dufree, and she was in her 30s and considered a spinster at the time. She was described as short and plump, and she also had humble origins. Her father had been a pushcart peddler. At 37, it was somewhat unexpected that she would find a match at all, much less someone of such a high socioeconomic status as Andrew Borden. But Andrew wanted someone who would raise his daughters and clean his house, something that 
he thought that Abby could do. Emma never called Abby mother, but instead called her by her first name. Lizzie, on the other hand, did at one point call Abby her mother. Remember, Abby was probably the only mother that she even remembered. But when it came to closeness, that was reserved for the two sisters. Emma was Lizzie's confidant and closest friend throughout her entire life, and the same for the other way around. There may not have been an outward tension in the household as the girls grew, but there was an, a pretty obvious lack of warmth. Emma, Lizzie, and stepmom Abby were given the exact same allowance each week. It was $4, which was less than the weekly wage of a female spinner at one of the local mills. Andrew never wore a wedding band after his marriage to Abby. They continued to live humbly, much to the chagrin of both Lizzie and Emma. They felt socially isolated and frustrated. When Lizzie was 12, in a pretty unusual move, her father did send her on a grand tour of Europe with other young women the same age as her. She confided in her cousin that was also on the trip that she didn't want to go back home. Lizzie was rumored to be cruel to animals and it was widely believed that she had beheaded her stepmother's cat. Despite the fact that the Borden family was wealthy and were growing wealthier year by year, you wouldn't know it if you looked at where they were living. Some might say that Andrew Borden was frugal, cheap. In 1871, when Lizzie was 11, the family moved to a house on 2nd Street. It had been a two-family home with each family on separate floors. Andrew had a remodel done where he turned it back into a one-family home. But during the renovation, he removed the upstairs faucet, leaving only the kitchen faucet on the downstairs and also a sink in the cellar, both of which only would produce cold water. And despite the fact that indoor plumbing did exist at the time and their wealth would have allowed them to have indoor plumbing, he didn't have that installed for over a year after they moved into the house. And even then it was only one flushable toilet located in the cellar. Into adulthood, the Borden sisters continued to live at Andrew Borden's house. They were nearing the age of spinsters themselves. The family was fairly religious and attended services at Central Congregational Church. Lizzie taught Sunday school. She was also the secretary treasurer of the Christian Endeavor Society. And she was involved in the Women's Christian Temperance Union. In 1889, the Borden family hired an Irish immigrant named Bridget Sullivan to be a live-in maid. She was in her mid-20s at the time. In the months leading up to the murders, things were growing increasingly tense at the Borden household. There was some friction over some real estate that Andrew purchased in order to help his wife's sister out. The girls objected, whining that they should get some real estate too. Andrew did try to appease them, transferring the house that they had grown up in with their, their mother over into their names. Evidently that wasn't good enough and Bridget ended up having to serve two different meals each night because the sisters refused to sit and eat dinner with their father and stepmother. Emma and Lizzie would not speak to their stepmother except to respond to a direct question. At one point, Lizzie referred to Abby as a mean, good-for-nothing thing. And to be clear, I know that I say girls, but at this point, Lizzie was in her 30s and Emma was in her 40s. Talk about entitlement. 
1891, a really strange robbery occurred at the Borden's house in which about $3,200 in today's money worth of cash, jewels, and other things were stolen in the middle of the day. Evidently, Emma, Lizzie, and Bridget, who were in the house at the time, didn't hear a thing. Also, when the police arrived, Lizzie led them on a really weird, like, excited house tour. Anyway, during the tour, they sort of determined that no one could really have entered the house except if they had entered through Lizzie's bedroom. Andrew decided to go ahead and call off that investigation, but I don't know. It was weird. On August 2nd, 1892, the Bordens ate leftover swordfish for dinner. Emma at the time was away visiting friends, but it turns out that Andrew, Abby, Lizzie, and also Bridget were struck by some kind of strange food poisoning. I don't know, probably from leftover swordfish. They did have a tendency to eat leftovers far beyond what we would consider safe, probably another byproduct of Andrew's frugality. But this particular incident troubled Abby. The following day, she went across the street to where her doctor happened to live. Upon answering the door, she told Dr. Bowen that she believed she had been poisoned. Unfortunately, once he found out about the leftover swordfish, Dr. Bowen was pretty sure it was just food poisoning. He did go ahead and cross the street to come over and check on Andrew, but Andrew very angrily blocked the entrance to the door, would not let Dr. Bowen in, and announced that he would not be paying for that visit. On the morning of August 3rd, Lizzie entered D.R. Smith's drugstore on South Main. She requested what amounted to $3 of prussic acid. She claimed that she needed it to put on the edge of a sealskin cape. However, the druggist refused. He told Lizzie that this clear, odorless form of cyanide, which kills a person instantly and quietly, must be ordered by a doctor. Lizzie insisted, saying, well, I've been able to purchase this in the past for my capes. The druggist stood firm and Lizzie stormed out. This might have meant nothing, but after an evening meal of mutton soup, Everyone in the household fell sick again, except this time for Lizzie. That evening, Lizzie would go visit a friend's house and start talking about some nebulous threats that had been levied towards her father. People that she could not or would not name to her friend. She also told her friend that she believed her family might have been poisoned. Later that evening, she would come home and Sarah's brother or the girl's uncle would arrive um, as a house guest to stay for the night. After breakfast the next morning, Andrew and John, the girl's uncle, would sit chatting in the living room for over an hour. John left just before nine to go purchase some oxen and to visit another niece. He planned to be back in time for the noon meal. Andrew left for a walk, sometime around 9 a.m. that morning. Sometime between 9 and 10 a.m., Abby went upstairs to the guest room where John had slept in order to make the bed and tidy up a bit. This was unusual because cleaning the guest room was one of Lizzie and Emma's regular chores. When she walked into the room, Abby Borden faced her killer. She was struck just above her ear on the side of her head the small hatchet. The blow was strong enough to either kill her instantly or render her unconscious. She fell face down on the floor where her killer struck her 17 more times directly to the back of the head. Andrew returned home around 10.30 a.m. and was frustrated because his key would not unlock the front door 
which was jammed. Bridget came to the door after hearing Andrew knock and testified later that she heard Lizzie laughing from the top of the stairs. When Andrew came in, he asked Lizzie where Abby had gone. Lizzie told him that a messenger had arrived with a message that one of Abby's friends was sick and that Abby had gone to visit that sick friend. Lizzie then removed Andrew's boots, or maybe she didn't, and he laid down on the sofa in the living room to take a nap. Lizzie told Bridget that there was a sale down the street at the department store and that she should go check out the sale. But Bridget wasn't feeling too well, again after that mutton soup, and decided to go take a nap herself. Just before 11.10 a.m., Bridget was roused by Lizzie screaming. She yelled, Maggie, come quick. Father's dead. Somebody's come in and killed him. Side note, both Lizzie and Emma called Bridget Maggie because their previous maid had been named Maggie and I guess it wasn't important enough to learn the new maid's name. Ugh. Can you hear my eyes rolling? When Bridget got downstairs, she saw that Andrew was slumped on the couch, having been also hit in the head 10 or 11 times with a hatchet. I'm sorry, one of the blows was so hard that it split his eyeball in two and his wounds were still bleeding. The doctor from across the street arrived to find both Abby and Andrew dead. The investigation saw Lizzie telling a lot of contradictory stories and also outright lies. First she said she heard sounds and then she didn't hear sounds. Abby left to visit a friend, but there was no note from a messenger. She was calm and poised when questioned and her alibis changed with the wind. But despite this initial sort of back and forth, the police didn't really thoroughly search the house at first at all. Emma returned home and a friend came to stay with the girls. Finally, on August 6th, the police did end up having a more thorough search of the house. They found two hatchets, two axes, and a hatchet with a broken handle in the cellar. They did suspect that the hatchet with the broken handle was the murder weapon, but Forensics was really limited at the time and the testing that they did do revealed that a hair that was found on the hatchet was actually a, a cow hair, not a human hair. They also couldn't detect any blood on the hatchet head whatsoever. The mayor of Fall River visited Lizzie at the Borden house and told her that she was a suspect in the murder. The next morning, their friend came downstairs and saw Lizzie burning a dress in the kitchen. She claimed that the dress was covered in paint. That, combined with her erratic testimony at an inquest hearing on August 8th, led her to be arrested for the murders of Abby and Andrew Borden on August 11th. Thus began what they called the trial of the century. It was during the trial that the song that you hear often with children skipping rope on the playground was written and sung by school children across the country. The trial itself began on June 5th, 1893 in New Bedford, Massachusetts. The state's case 
primarily rested upon the premise that no one else could have committed the crime. This is not exactly the strongest story. They theorized that Lizzie had used the hatchet that they found in the cellar to bludgeon her stepmother and her father. After the murder, she had removed the handle because it was covered in blood. Because Lizzie would also have been covered in blood due to these very violent murders, the prosecutors said that Lizzie had burned the dress that she was wearing in the kitchen. The main defense was that Lizzie had actually been in the family barn during the murders, looking for sinkers for a fishing trip that she was taking later that day with her friends. That and well, she was a weak woman, naturally. The testimony that Lizzie had given at the inquest hearing was ruled as inadmissible in that trial. It was partially because she hadn't had a lawyer present, and it was partially because she had been prescribed morphine after the murders to calm her nerves. The prescribed morphine was a pretty high dose and was determined to really make her maybe not quite fully there during that inquest hearing. Also ruled inadmissible was the idea that she had gone to buy the poison just before the murders. The judge ruled that that was evidence that was too remote in time, which is kind of weird because it was like the day before, but I don't know, I'm not a judge, so who am I to ju judge? <laughs> Abby and Andrew's skulls were actually presented as evidence during the trial, and after they were pulled out, Lizzie actually fainted for a few minutes. Emma Borden testified saying that Lizzie and Andrew had had a very close relationship and that her relationship with Abby had been totally cordial. On June 20th, 1893, after an hour and a half of deliberations, the all-male jury acquitted Lizzie Borden of all charges. Upon hearing the verdict, Lizzie let out a yell and then sank into her chair and buried her head in her hands. She asked to be returned home. After the trial, Lizzie Borden defiantly returned to Fall River. She knew that she would be recognized and probably chastised, but Fall River was her home and she didn't care. Indeed, she was ostracized by the high society of Fall River, despite the fact that the press really treated this as an obvious declaration of her true innocence. The press didn't really believe that she could have committed those murders. Lizzie never once spoke publicly about the murders or about the trial. She continued to attend the Central Congregational Church and sat in the family pew. No one would sit next to her. She and her sister inherited their father's tremendous wealth and purchased a house on the hill the neighborhood that they wished they had lived in their entire life. They called their large modern home Maplecroft, and they also hired many people, including live-in maids, servants, and a coachman. Lizzie began to find herself in circles outside of the Fall River crowd, especially in the theater circle. She began to associate with actors, artists, and other bohemian types. In 1905, she developed a short and intense friendship with actress Nance O'Neill. And after Lizzie threw her a lavish party at Maplecroft, Emma, who had confided in her pastor that there were things happening at the house that she did not approve of, moved out of the house. They never spoke again. Friends came and went, and eventually Lizzie lived out the remainder of her life in relative solitude. She raised and loved Boston Terriers, and she would buy treats and ice cream for the children of her domestic servants, 
whom called her Auntie Borden. She died on June 1st, 1927, and was buried by her request at the feet of her father, Andrew. Emma Borden would die 10 days later. They were buried alongside Andrew, Abby, their mother, Sarah, and their little sister, Alice, less than two miles from the nightmare house on 2nd Street. Oh, and Bridget Sullivan, the maid, she spent the rest of her days living in the United States, in Montana, actually, living a quiet and modest life. So what do you think? Can Lizzie's changing stories be explained by grief and trauma and morphine use? Or is it something else? Who, in the middle of a murder investigation, decides to burn their dress? What do you think happened that day in the Borden household? Was it Lizzie? Or was it some other character that we know, or don't, who committed the murders that day? Did Lizzie deserve to be ostracized by the community that she grew up in, or was she innocent? Why are we still so intrigued about a case like this that happened over a hundred years ago? Why is it so compelling? And what about that nursery rhyme? Did you ever sing it? Did you know what it meant? And like me, did you think that Lizzie was a kid when she committed the murders? We'll probably never know who murdered Andrew and Abby Borden. There are theories that Bridget was involved and paid off in some way. There's another theory that it might've been a robbery gone wrong. And of course there are several others. But for this case, I'm going to employ Occam's razor. For those of you who don't know, Occam's razor is a theory that with all things being equal, the simplest answer is the true answer. I think there's just overwhelming evidence that Lizzie was the murderer of her father and her stepmother. She and Emma were consistently bitter about Abby and they were constantly frustrated that their father wasn't giving them the money that they thought that they deserved. She was trying to buy poison. She might've actually bought poison and it's possible that they were really getting sick because of it. She also went over to her friend's house and like planted this weird theory that people were after her father, even though there wasn't anyone after her father. And let's be honest, she burned evidence. Paint, red paint, honestly, come on now. But I will say this, the trial was hampered significantly when the evidence from the inquest hearing was thrown out. It probably should have been, but Lizzie's shifting story was a key piece of evidence. My opinion is that the jury brought the correct verdict based on the evidence that was brought to them. I do not think the prosecution presented their case without a reasonable doubt. It seems like it was probably impossible for them to get a conviction with the evidence that they had a broken hatchet, and a woman in the house. In March of this year, Lance Zoll, who is the owner of U.S. Ghost Adventures, purchased the Borden House on 2nd Street. It had been operating as a bed and breakfast, actually, for many years. He purchased it for a sweet $2 million. When he takes ownership, he plans to add to the bed and breakfast experience for visitors. This includes some virtual elements. He's going to add cast reenactments, a 24 seven camera that you can view online, and of course some ax throwing opportunities. He might even be adding some escape rooms. Thanks for hanging out with me. Do me a favor and rate this podcast on your favorite listening app, if you're listening on a podcast app. Five stars, five stars, or I mean, however many stars you think it deserves. No pressure. 
Next week, we're headed to the Wild West to tell the story of a man who is both a lawman and an outlaw in one lifetime. For our drink, we'll incorporate the Old West standard, whiskey. I'll see you on Facebook, Instagram, or back here next week. And remember, there are always alternatives to murdering your parents.